All right, we'll get started. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to start reading in verse 31. I'm going to go over a lot of scriptures quickly and just give you very simple points that state what they mean for you. And if at any point you guys have any questions or comments about anything, uh, you can put your hand up, make sure before you speak or ask that you have a microphone, which we have distributed around the room, just so that we can hear you for the recording. Okay, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This includes the Gentiles because we are grafted in. New Testament says that. It's not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Their sin I will remember no more. That's what we're going to focus on. There is, let's just kind of introduce what we'll get into later here. Two relationships to your past sin, or your past in general. One is how God looks at it, and two is how you look at it. And often how God looks at it is very different from how we look at it. As far as God is concerned, he says, not only is it forgiven, but he remembers it no more. He can't, he can't bring it up or recall it to mind. There's a passage in Ezekiel that we're going to look at real fast. It's chapter 33 of Ezekiel. In verse 16, Ezekiel 33, verse 16, it's a very similar promise. This is talking about if a wicked man repents, turns from his way, and follows God. Verse 16, it says, None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. None of them will be remembered. Awesome promise there. Let's turn next to Micah. Like I said, we're going to go through these quickly, and then I'll get into some more explanation. Micah chapter 7. And these are all in the Old Testament, by the way. Micah chapter 7. At the very end of the chapter, also the end of the book, starting in verse 18. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? I'll pause there. This is very closely connected to a verse in Romans chapter 3. It says God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Cross-reference here in Micah. Then he says, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. The illustration of describing our sins being cast into the depths of the sea essentially speaks to the point that one of the things we know the least about in terms of our planet is the depths of the ocean. There's a, we can only go so deep in, term of, in terms of exploration. And the fact that our sins are cast into those depths means we're not meant to venture there anymore. Because they're, they're too far down, too, too deeply buried, and it's meant to be that way. Romans 6 says that your, the old man was buried with him. It was left in the grave. So God passed over the transgression, subdued our iniquities, cast all our sins to the depth of the sea. He remembers our sins no more. Then you've got Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Let's go there. Turning to the New Testament now. Besides what I mentioned in Romans, Acts chapter 17, verse 30, says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, 
but now commands all men everywhere to repent. I'm just going to read that again, and then we'll get into verse 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Amen. Okay. A few more, and then I'll begin to explain some more things. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. Referenced it already. We're just going to read a few more verses from that passage. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Or excuse me, 22. Romans three twenty-two, starting there, says, Even the righteousness of God, not your righteousness, God's righteousness. Keep that in mind. It's the righteousness that is of God, belongs to God, and that God possesses. Through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. The to all and on all is very important. It essentially means that God's righteousness, which Christ earned for you, because you can never earn it, was given to you and placed on you. That speaks to two things. Number one, 2 Corinthians 5 says that you have become the righteousness of God. That's in verse 21. On all is a reference to essentially that it's placed on you as this mark on your record of having been made innocent and having been made righteous because of your faith, not because of your works. And it says, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means that you're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In this Jesus, God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. That means God's wrath was appeased. And the claim of justice against you for your sin was satisfied. That's what that speaks to. Through your faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, which is a reference to God's patience, God, this is, I mentioned this before, passed over the sins that were previously committed, just like Passover that's celebrated by the Jews. Passed over your sin to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot of meat in that passage that I won't get into right now. Again, the point we're focusing on is the fact that he passed over your sins. He gives you his righteousness because of your faith and not because of your works. Then to finish this first section out in terms of the scripture that we're reading, Romans 5.1 says you're justified. You can just write down the reference. We don't have to turn there, but you can write down that reference if you're taking notes. Romans 5.1 says you're justified and you have peace with God. And then 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 says you're washed, sanctified, and justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Justified in the Greek means made innocent. So you're guilty. You go from having been a sinner to being made as if you had never sinned. That's what innocence is. This does not just mean innocence and that you just have your record expunged. Because here's the thing. In the terms of the law, man's law, if you have a record expunged, in the sight of the law, you're no longer guilty. But in the sight of God, you still are. And in your heart, you still are. Still are. You still committed those crimes. And that's different from the way it works in our relationship to God. In terms of our relationship with God, not only is your record cleared, but you're given a new heart and a new spirit, Ezekiel says in chapter 36. And then Jeremiah 31, which we just read, it says he writes his law on your mind and on your heart. So if you're given a new heart and a new spirit, and Christ became your sin so you could become the righteousness of God, that's 2 Corinthians 5.21, and that means... Your record is clear and you are made innocent on the inside as if you had never sinned. And that's not only how God sees you, that is your nature, which is really, really key to understand. There's a lot of different streams of Christianity that would say that you are seen as righteous, but you're really not. But the Bible speaks explicitly stating that, that you are made the righteousness of God and you are given a new heart and a new spirit. And it says that your spirit is made perfect and you are perfected forever spiritually. Now, we know your body is not perfect. Your mind is not perfect. 
Your body has yet to be redeemed and your mind is being renewed. There's progress happening there. There's sanctification happening there. But in terms of your spirit, it is absolutely new, absolutely clean and purified. And the Bible says it is created according to the righteousness and holiness of God himself. That's who you are in spirit. Now, if that is who you are, then of course it's evident that there cannot remain a single stain or mark of sin anymore in terms of your spirit. So when the Bible says he remembers your sins no more, that works because he didn't just take something that was broken, put the pieces back together and call it good. He threw out all the bad pieces and just made a new one. So there can't be a memory of sin in a new creation. If you're an old creation that's reused or recycled, then maybe, but you're not reused and recycled. You're a new creation. Amen? God can't remember your sin because it's technically not actually you anymore. It's an old man. So if it's not you anymore, the old nature, old sin, and you're a new creation, God, of course, cannot remember your sins anymore. So again, as a reminder, as far as God is concerned, he holds nothing of your past sins in memory. Now, what this gets into next is, well, what about our memory? This is where things usually become a problem. Number one, I have to say, and this is just kind of a foundation of this, you're not going to see your mind renewed in the area of guilt or shame or condemnation over your past sins if you do not believe that God has forgotten them. That's where it starts. You have to believe that God does not hold it in his memory anymore in order for your mind to make progress in this area. Because if you believe God is holding it against you, absolutely you're going to hold it against yourself. So it starts with making sure you know God's not thinking about it anymore. Amen? Okay. So, now let's talk about what the Bible says about our mind. Because this is where it gets a little bit more down to earth. Let's start by going to Romans 6. Romans 6. We will start in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. If you look at verse 7, in connection with verse 1, or 2, excuse me, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? That's verse 2. And verse 7 says, He who has died has been freed from sin. The relationship that you had to sin, based on what the Bible says, is that you had what Romans 6 here says was a body of sin. That Greek word for body is, uh, even just the English word is self-explanatory. It is speaking to a physical, a physical body. But in this context, what it's talking about is a host. Because your body possesses the Spirit of God. It hosts the Spirit of God, if that makes sense. It's saying beforehand, you had a body of sin, which means your body hosted sin. There was a sinful nature that lived inside of your body. And that is what defined your body, your appearance, if that makes sense. Now, it says that body has been done away with. KJV says it's been destroyed. So what hosted sin before has died. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up and the reason why this is important is because it now says your relationship to sin is sin would be what's trying to torment you, but the body it's trying to torment is dead and completely unresponsive. So you can't annoy something that's dead. Something can only be annoyed or pestered or agitated if it's living, right? If somebody's dead and you're standing next to their body and you're poking at them and, I don't know, insulting them or cussing them out, whatever, don't do that. 
any of that. <laughs> that would be really weird. But <laughs> that person's not there, right? They're not in that body anymore. So if you have died to sin, that means any way in which sin would try to come back and haunt, torment, pester, agitate, or annoy you, it's as if it's doing it to a dead body. There's no response. That's the relationship you have to sin now. And this is speaking of not just your past sins, but also sin today. The standard in which we live, who we are in our nature is that we're freed from sin. So there shouldn't be this idea that sin is always going to have power to control or torment us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be walking free. Amen? So, you are dead to sin. If sin still haunts or annoys you, you don't yet really know that you're dead to it. That's the point. So, if we move from that, which is Romans 6, into Hebrews, it adds another layer to this that's really important and speaks specifically to your mind and your conscience. So, go to Hebrews chapter 9. I dropped my Bible the other day and the cover completely ripped off. So now I've just got paper. <laughs> I'm very sad about it. <laughs> I can get it, it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it adds character. Um, yeah, I, I can get it rebound, but maybe I shouldn't. It's kind of part of the point, right? Okay, I closed my Bible after I turned to Hebrews. Um, <laughs> Okay, Hebrews 9. So if we're, if, if God has forgiven us, and I try to turn this on, no. Oh, here, here. I'll do it for you. There you go. I forgot about that. Yeah. So if we have repented to the Lord for a past sin, and he's forgotten it, and it keeps coming up with us, then would it not? would we not be wise then to take that thought captive and say, no, God's forgiven me of that, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to accept the responsibility for that sin any longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That would be part of taking thoughts captive. We'll, we'll get into this a little bit more in terms of the discipline you actually apply to how you think and being intentional about what you think and what you meditate on in terms of past sins. That's also part of it. We may get into that more in more detail today. We'll see. But yeah, great point there. So Hebrews 9, let's start reading in verse 13. Hebrews 9 verse 13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. So if we pause there, he's making a point, which is that if in the Old Testament you could take blood of sacrificed animals, apply it to a person, and it was sufficient to purify the flesh, which means to cover their sin. In other words, if that worked in the Old Testament, for that purpose, verse 14, then how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse what? Your conscience. It makes this distinction between the flesh and the conscience. This is extremely important. In the Old Testament, the offering of the blood of animals could purify the flesh. It only applied to your appearance in the sight of God and your cleanliness in terms of serving God as a physical body. It covered sin. But the thing is, if you cover something up, it's still there. And so Hebrews later says that it was absolutely impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to ever actually take away sin. All it did was cover it up, but could never take it away. The difference is you've got somebody who's committed a crime. Like I said earlier, they get the record clear, but they still know they've, they've committed the crimes. They still have that guilt inside. The blood of bulls and goats could never take that guilt from your conscience. That was the problem. It could never actually purge or cleanse sin from your inner being. It could just cover it up. Then he says, so if the blood of bulls and goats was sufficient to cleanse the flesh in the Old Testament, then in the New Testament, how much more sufficient will Jesus' blood be to cleanse sin from your conscience? 
It's about your conscience. It always has been. This is the point. If the gospel is just about God seeing you as righteous, even though you know you're really not, and you still dwell on that, then that's a problem. The whole point of the blood of Jesus was to cleanse your conscience inside. How you think. And this conscience is a word that is specifically referring to your thinking. Of course, we know it applies to your heart, your spirit, because the Bible says you're given a new heart and a new spirit. But it uses the word conscience because how you think is important. Whether you think sinner or not is important. The gospel is about cleansing your conscience. Amen? So then, and walking in it, right? Cleanse your conscience from dead works to what? Serve. Serve. The living God. Why do you have to have your conscience cleansed? To serve. In other words, you're going to have a very hard time serving God confidently if your conscience is still defiled. Yes. That was the most formal hand raising I've ever seen. My bad. <laughs> Go for it. Just making sure it's on. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I was just going to read what Paul said in Philippians uh, 3.13. He said, brothers and sisters, I did not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me uh, heavenward in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reading that. We're actually going to get into that shortly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm glad you read that, though. Um, yeah, that's Philippians 3, uh, verses what, 13 through 15? Is that what it was? 13 through 14? 13 to 14, yes. You guys can write that reference down. We'll get into that a little bit later here. Okay, so now go to chapter 10 of Hebrews. He gets into this concept in a little bit more detail. We're going to start in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 10. Before I read it, remember the point of you having your conscience cleansed is to serve the living God. Repeating the point, it's going to be very hard for you to, to confidently serve God if you don't have your conscience clean. This does not mean that you have no sin in your life because we know we still make mistakes. We know we're still going to fail. When we sin or if we sin, the Bible says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So we know we have, we maintain forgiveness. But your conscience being clear in terms of the confidence that you are righteous before God is the type of cleansing that this is talking about. Without that in place, it will be very hard for you to serve God. The reason why is what's talked about in Hebrews 10. That's what we'll get into. Verse 1, Hebrews 10. says, For the law, this is the law of Moses, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. In other words, you could not be made perfect or perfected or made righteous before God by the offerings and sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Never worked. Never could. Verse 2, it says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. The point he's making is that if Old Testament sacrifices, the offering of the blood of animals, could make you perfect, they would have stopped. Because once a person becomes righteous, there's no need to offer any more sacrifices. So think about this. The very fact that Jesus only had to die once for you means what? It worked. (laughs) Exactly. It worked. That's the point. He doesn't have to die again because if he had to die again, then that means you'd have more sin that would had to be appeased or appeased for, excuse me. It worked. It's a done deal. It's finished. Only one sacrifice was needed, which means it was sufficient for all sin for all time. That's what Hebrews says later. Then it says in verse 2, the second half, after he asked the question, would they not have ceased to be offered? He says, for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. Then he says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Take away sins from what? Your conscience. Remember, this is about your conscience. This is about your mind. This is about how you think. He uses the word reminder. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder. You recall sin through repeated sacrifice. Why? 
Because if you are a priest and you make a sacrifice for a lot of sacrifices for all the people that came and gave their animals for their sins in a day. Now, in addition to that, the priest had to offer a morning and an evening sacrifice. So there was a lamb in the morning that was just kind of to cover everything. In the middle of the day, all the animals that the people brought to you. Then there was the evening sacrifice, which is to cover things just in case something was missed. Then you have that every single day, including on the Sabbath. The priests were the only ones that didn't get out of the Sabbath because people sinned on the Sabbath too, unfortunately. Then you have the Day of Atonement once a year. And on the Day of Atonement, it was a very, very special ceremony where the priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies. This only happened once a year. And he would offer blood. And this was to, the Bible says, cover all the sins committed in ignorance. So just in case somebody sinned, didn't realize they did, and therefore neglected to bring an animal, that's what this sacrifice was for. So everything had to be covered, even the things that people weren't even aware of, which tells you that you sin in ignorance, right? So side note, if you have to confess every single sin you commit to be forgiven, then we'd all go to hell, <laughs> okay? Because we miss things, right? Right, <laughs> right. So now if that was your life, if you were that priest, do you know how much you'd be thinking about sin? All the time. Because every single one of those sacrifices is a reminder of sin. Oh, somebody sinned. That's why I got to kill this animal. Oh, people sinned and they didn't think about it. They didn't know it. Now I got to make this sacrifice. The constant, constant, constant service to God under that covenant was a constant reminder of sin. I'm sure it probably would have become robotic. Mm -hmm. Feel bad for the animals. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the point. Yeah, it's part of the point. Yeah. Plus, you think about how they had to kill those animals. It was actually quite gruesome. You know, there was, you know, the, the disemboweling and the tearing to pieces and the burning in a very special way and all that. But regardless, Hebrews says, in that, there's a reminder of sins every year. It was considered an honor to serve and worship God in this way. However, in this worship... The thing that people were, the priests were conscious of most because of these sacrifices was sin. It says they were reminded of it on a continual basis. Yes. Would it also be a constant reminder that our sin affected all of creation and that this innocent animal is affected by the sin that we just mm -hmm. did? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the idea that the animals are innocent. And so the fact that something innocent has to, oh, we, we have pictures now. <laughs> this wasn't planned, but is that like an example of what it probably looked like? Okay, so there's a lot of blood. Yeah. So the point is, constant reminder of sins. And that's why sin could never be taken away. Because the problem with sin was not that offerings could be made to forgive you. The problem was that those offerings made you conscious of sin all the time. That was the problem. So that's why Hebrews is saying, guys, what Christ did was really not just about forgiveness because you can be forgiven and be conscious of sin all the time. That was the problem the Israelites had. They make all these sacrifices to get forgiven for a day, but they're still thinking about sin. Oh, I messed up again. Here we go. Jesus' blood was about cleansing your conscience so that you don't have to be conscious of it anymore. And that's why it says in Hebrews 10, worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. New man in Christ. Now, we know we're one of those worshipers once purified, meaning one time by the offering of the body of Jesus, because that's what Hebrews 9, the previous chapter, says, that Jesus' blood was shed to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, now we just have to think about practically, how do we apply this to our lives? What does it actually mean to have no more consciousness of sins? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you make a mistake, you have to pretend like you didn't and keep living in it and not repent. That's not what this means. What it does mean is that if you sin, the Bible says you're supposed to confess it. In other words, if you know, know to confess it, whatever you're not aware of, that's another issue. But if you know you've done something wrong, the Bible says 1 John 1, 9, that you should confess it. And the purpose of that confession, confession is just simply for your own heart. 
to be tender before God, to acknowledge when you've done wrong, because you have to acknowledge a wrong in order to fix it, right? If you don't acknowledge it, you're not going to do anything about fixing it. But in terms of your continual consciousness, what you meditate on, you're not to live every day conscious of being a sinner. That's the, that's the difference. The priests were conscious of being a sinner, that, that they could never have their conscience cleansed. The part about our consciousness that changes is that we know, we believe, we live in an overflow knowing that we are no longer sinners in God's sight or by nature, but that we are new creations. We are righteous. We are justified, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did. And then when we make a mistake, we confess it, we repent, and we don't have to be conscious of it anymore because it is in the past. It's buried, thrown to the depth of the sea. It doesn't have to be continually recalled. And some people would say to keep you humble. Because what's supposed to keep you humble is the fact that you didn't do it. Jesus did it for you. That's what keeps you humble. Your righteousness did not make you righteous in God's sight. It was God's righteousness that made you righteous in God's sight. What Christ did, that's the humility factor. Yes. This makes me, am I on? Yes, this makes me question um, church doctrine that goes around talking about I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Because you always have in front of your face, I'm a sinner. Mm -hmm. And if that's what's going on in your mind, then you're going to sin. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I, you know, and you hear it on the streets and evangelism. Oh yeah, we're just all sinners saved by, no, I'm not a sinner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a new man in Christ. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. gone. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Very important distinction to make. Now, of course, by yourself, without God's grace, without Jesus, yes, you're a sinner. But we're not talking about by yourself because you're not by yourself. You're in Christ. Big difference. Yeah. Just a verse um, in 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2, if you want to address that in case we sin. Yeah. Um, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, if anyone sins, he's the propitiation for our sins, uh, which is basically trying to state that. I would, I would recommend you read the whole chapter, 1 John 2. But it essentially is stating, for believers, having been born again, it says, if you sin, remember you have a propitiation. Jesus' blood, right? So when you make a mistake, you just simply know, okay, Jesus covered this. This doesn't mean it's not important to God. It's still important that we repent, of course. But when you repent, you can know that God has been appeased for that wrong. That's what propitiation is. Therefore, you don't have to be thinking about, oh, what do I have to do to get right with God? You've been made right with God. Your repentance is about simply being, uh, the first Peter says, an obedient child of God, not to get righteous because you already are, but simply to live a life that is more reflective of your father, to be an imitator of God is what obedience is about. Your obedience does not make you more righteous. It never could. Otherwise, you would just be repeatedly making the same, same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Right, exactly. Okay, so, that being said, the next topic that comes up with this is, is there supposed to be the sense in which we would have to dig into the past? Now, depending on your background, depending on the experience you were raised in, there are certain, what you might call habits or patterns, whether it's behavioral or thinking patterns, that might continue into the present after you're saved. Meaning, you struggle with something before you were saved, you get born again, you put your faith in Jesus, you repent from everything you can, for whatever reason, there's just something, whether it's in your thinking or actions, that you just have a really hard time kicking out of your life. Now, there's this Doctrines floating around that basically say you have to go dig into all this past and, you know, there's whole generational ancestral things that I'm not going to get into right now. And whether that's a relevant part of what sets you free now. Now, I, for this teaching, it depends on what you guys are up for because we can just cover more of what I've just talked about and dig into that more. 
in terms of just generalities about your thinking, or we can get into more of that generational stuff and address it biblically, but it just depends on what you're up for because that will take a little bit more time. It's going to be more than just one Sunday anyway. But by show of hands, who would like to get into that today? Okay, so a few. Okay, not majority though. Okay, so we'll see. Um, so what, what we can address now, uh, just to make sure we finish out this first topic, uh, is a few things that, one thing that Jesus said, one thing that Paul said. So first is Luke 9.62, and then we'll get into Philippians 3 after that. Luke 9.62 general principle here. Verse, we'll start verse 61, actually, just to get the context. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'll just read that again. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's two ways of looking at this. The first is looking back in terms of looking back at your, in this specific context, previous relationships and more specifically family members that do not follow Jesus, which is what's being talked about here, and always thinking you have to please them or appease them while trying to follow Jesus. The point that Jesus was making to this individual was, you're going to be slowed down if you keep looking back at all those relationships you're attached to and thinking you have to try to please those people. This is about following me. It's about pleasing God. It's the point that Jesus is making. He says, you're not fit for the kingdom if you're looking back in that sense. The second way of looking at this is looking back in terms of looking into your past period. And I would say as a general principle, and this is biblically supported, that if you in any way let your past define you, if you let it be part of your identity, part of how you see yourself, you're not going to be fit for, in, in terms of if you're talking about physical fitness, you're not going to be in good shape to be able to follow Jesus. It's going to be very difficult. Just as if being in the same way that being physically unhealthy makes it very difficult to live a very effective life. You apply the same reasoning here. You won't be fit for, in shape for the kingdom of God if you're living in the past. It's not going to be possible. Then you go to Philippians 3, which is the scripture that uh, Carlos brought up previously. So if you go to Philippians chapter 3, we'll just read that. Philippians chapter 3. Let's start in, let's start in verse 7. A little bit of context here. Philippians 3 verse 7. It says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. The things that were gained to him that he's talking about is his previous education as a Pharisee accumulating a righteousness through the law of Moses by fulfilling every tradition and command that he could that was in the law of Moses. That was gained to him before because his reputation as a Pharisee was that he says he kept the law blameless. In terms of how people saw Paul, they thought he was an absolutely blameless Pharisee. That was gained to him in terms of his human reputation. He says, but that ended up being loss in terms of his relationship to Christ. Now that would typically be a moment of disappointment when you're thinking everything that you did to try to work to a place of your own righteousness ended up being absolutely useless to gain you anything in the sight of God. I'm sure he probably felt, man, all that was for nothing. But also it's a relief at the same time, and he explains why. Indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The Greek word there means dung. It's not worth any more than poop. That's his point. Yes, I did say poop on a teaching on a Sunday morning. Don't be offended. Just, <laughs> yeah. 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, being given a greater and even a perfect righteousness simply by faith, not having to work for it. What a relief. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. One thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Okay, we'll stop there. The one thing he does in order to reach this goal and to press on, to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of him. In other words, if you want to be able to walk in, attain, live in what Christ died for you to live and walk in, there's one thing you have to do. One. Doesn't give you a list of three things, two things, five things, ten things. He makes it very simple. One thing. And the one thing he says is you have to forget those things which are behind. Now this means something extra special coming from Paul. And here's why. Paul had the chiefest of reputations in terms of righteousness under the law of Moses. Nobody kept the law better than Paul did. And he says he was the chief of sinners because he persecuted the church, murdered and imprisoned Christians. So you've got the best of righteousness in the sight of man and the worst of sin in the sight of God. Not a great combo. Because you have the worst of sin and think it's okay and justified because of how righteous you think you are. Very, very, very deceived place to be in, right? Bad situation. Paul says he was the worst of sinners. And in uh, 1 Timothy, Paul says in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy that he obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly and in unbelief. He was ignorant. He was in unbelief. God gave him grace. God saved him. And he says this was to be a pattern. Oh, thank you for putting it up on the screen. That Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, God set Paul forth as an example and a pattern Christ will continue to follow of how far he will go to save sinners to the point of those who are the worst of sinners. So Paul was the first in a pattern and a habit that God has had ever since, which is to save sinners the worst of sinners. Paul was an example in that sense. So that means you have two things that Paul has in mind that he has to forget. The first is everything he worked to accumulate his own righteousness. He had to forget everything he did to earn righteousness because in regards to Christ, it was poop. Didn't mean a thing. So that means there's one thing you have to forget. This is part of forgetting sin or not being conscious of sin because the Bible says all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says that. So even the best of your works are less than the glory of God, which makes them sin <laughs> without the grace of God, right? So you have to forget about attaching your sense of confidence before God to what you've done to earn your own righteousness. You have to forget that. That's the first thing Paul talks about. That cannot be in your conscious mind if you're going to be able to stand before God and actually know him and the power of his resurrection. That's number one. Number two, things that what we might say are more blatantly sinful. That's the second part of Paul's life, which is being a persecutor of the church, the chief of sinners. He had to put that behind him. And if you look at how Paul talks in terms of him saying, reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. He thanks God and Christ Jesus, his Lord, in the end of Romans 7. 
and says that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, that he's been set free from the law of sin and death, that nothing will separate him from the love of God. The end of Romans 8 says that, that God has justified him and that nobody can bring a charge against him because he is God's elect. He's talking in a way that would appear to be coming from a person who didn't have a lot of sin. But he's talking with that much confidence as a person who is the worst of sinners. Which tells us at least that if Paul could say that and believe that, then you can too. No matter how much sin there's been in your past or present, if you don't yet know Christ or you haven't given your life to him, whatever your heart situation may be, Paul could do it, you can too. If Paul had that mind, you can have that mind as well. And he specifically says, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. It's commanded to think the way he's saying you need to think. And he says, if you think otherwise, or if you disagree, God will show it to you. He has confidence that God will make it real. But it begins with simple realization that if Paul could believe what he believe, believed, being the chiefest of sinners, then we can believe exactly the same thing. And our past should have no relevance in determining what we are going to believe now that we are in Christ. So, if you want to reach the goal of living the life that God has called you to live, you have to forget, just as God has, your past good and your past bad. Both. Because both will be a hindrance. If you do not forget those things, in terms of keep them out of your conscious mind, you're denying the one thing that allows you to be able to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and take hold of what he laid hold of you for. So this is very, very important. We need to n remember no more in order to live this life just as God remembers no more in terms of past sin. He doesn't remember your sin anymore. You have to have that same forgetfulness, if you will, that comes from God in order to live a confident life in Christ. Uh, Jacob, did you have a point? Cross reference is Hebrews eleven fifteen. If you want to address that, Hebrews eleven fifteen. Watch this be some random verse. That means <laughs> this is a totally different topic. <laughs> oh sure, okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. That's a good one. It's talking about Abraham and Sarah and uh, Isaac and Jacob, that generation. After they left their homeland to pursue the call of God, it says if they had called to mind or thought about where they came from, it would have created the advantage for them or the opportunity for them, excuse me, to return to it. So in other words, what makes it easiest for you to go back to the old life is to think about it. That's the point. So don't think about it. <laughs> That's the point. Oh, yeah, that made me think of in, like, how the Israelites, after they left, they kept thinking about Egypt, and they were like, why did you send us out to die? We should go back. And, mm -hmm. like, that was terrible for them, but they kept thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, imagine that. They were slaves, beaten and oppressed, and they said, but, man, the cucumbers, <laughs> the onions, the leeks that we had in Egypt, and all we have is this worthless manna. That God gives them miraculously every day in the middle of the desert. And they called it worthless. Yeah, very bad, bad thing. You can imagine why God got so angry. But that's a great point, Jasmine, because they were thinking about it. They were thinking about bondage and they thought, man, that was better than what we have now. They had the opportunity to return. Not necessarily literally, but at least in their minds because of meditating on it. Okay, that's what I will plan to finish with for today. Do we have any questions? Okay, I imagine what this will uh, evoke next, or what it might already be right now, is, okay, how do I actually do this? <laughs> In terms of what are the mental habits? Mind control, Mind control yeah. 
Um, so we, we may get into that next week. Uh, I would like you guys to do some of your own studying on this as well, and if, especially if this is a more relevant issue for you and that you, you, you struggle with this. You struggle with your past, thinking about it. It repeatedly comes up. Study these scriptures. See how it helps you. I can guarantee you that simply meditating on these verses is a part of healing in this area of your life because you have to know what the Bible says. Think about it. Meditate on it. Believe it for yourself in order for it to have an effect. So start there. If you come up with questions or maybe even an example in your life of how it goes for you and the challenges that you face, bring them for next time so that we can address those, whether they're questions or comments or what have you. And then we'll also get into some of the doctrines that you kind of see floating around out there that, that contradict this, which is essentially this idea that there's a lot of digging into the past you have to get into. Um, and this addresses like ancestral sins and those generational curses, uh, specifically generational curses is something that I want to make sure that we cover scripturally. Um, and clarifying the fact that there was a specific case in which a generational curse under the law was relevant for people who were under the law. And then what part of that law of Moses has carried into the New Testament? There actually is one part of it, but it doesn't apply to believers. So you don't have to worry about that. It's actually about unbelievers. Um, so... <laughs> It, I just want to make sure we clear it all up because there's a lot of, there's a lot of confusion in this area. Um, and the goal for going over this topic, this is the last thing I'll say before we do the offering here, is that you guys would be able to be equipped with this information, with this knowledge, both for yourself and applying it to your own life, and also to be able to address it with other people if you hear some false information going around. So in your own relationships, whether it's in this community or elsewhere, if you see believers talking about things that have to do with the past and bringing it, bringing it into their conscious mind, recalling it over and over again, understand these scriptures and be able to explain it to other people. Because again, the, 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 how crucial this is can't be overstated. Simply because Paul says, the one thing I have to do if I'm going to lay hold of this life that Christ has given me is forget what's behind. So obviously, if we're not forgetting what's behind, that's a problem. Amen?